and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Again, we're continuing with our study, looking at Christ and his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. And this evening, we're going to begin looking at how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Um, So, what we often find in Scripture is how these different roles are fulfilled by Christ. Um, But as we've talked about, we've come to this sort of cryptic, sort of unknown character or figure in Scripture as Melchizedek, and there's not a lot said about him. We see him coming to Abraham after he had defeated uh, the kings uh, that were arrayed against him and against the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and another group of uh, city kings. Um, We see Abraham praising God through him. We see Melchizedek blessing Abram. And that's pretty much all we see until we come to the time of David and we looked at... uh, Two weeks ago, Psalm 110, and this great royal psalm, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and there we see some clear indications of what Melchizedek meant as far as who Christ was going to be, the connection that's brought there. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter 6, we see the writer of Hebrews continuing with the theme of what he's been talking about regarding the greatness, or the greaterness, if you could say that, made up... Pastors are allowed to make up words. Paul made up words, I'll make up words. The greaterness of Christ throughout that book, and we're going to look at that a little bit, but we come to Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, and Melchizedek comes up again. And it's really here that we get to see the concept of Melchizedek, particularly as it relates to Christ, really hashed out. So we're going to do something a little unusual this evening. I'm going to read Hebrews 5 through 7. So we're going to read the entire section here. Um, One of the things that I think we sometimes lose when we go through and sequentially preach through verses and, you know, we take them, you know, units at a time, phrases at a time, is sometimes we can lose sort of the bigger picture and we can get lost in the the weeds, as they say, or lose lose the forest for the trees. So I think as we, as we journey into this, because we're going to be looking at some very specific things throughout this passage, I wanted us to step back and let's, let's appreciate everything that the writer of Hebrews is seeking to put into place here. And really, to do that, we can't even just start in chapter 5. We have to back up into chapter 4 and verse 14, which, of course, is built upon everything that he was saying in chapter 4, and everything in chapter 4 is built upon chapter 3. So we could read the whole passage, the whole book of Hebrews, uh, but uh, I'll, 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 I'll keep you from that for the sake of just seeing how he brings in and introduces the topic of Melchizedek and then the arguments he makes that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So as a consequence of the fact that we have a great, great high priest, that's sort of what we can say when he says since or therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, That Son of God is going to become important. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So why can we find mercy and grace to help in time of need? Because, or for, that's where chapter 5 comes in. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, because of his weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that is a quotation from Psalm 110. So we see the connections now being made. Verse 7, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, we are now into chapter 6, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is possible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. I'm sorry, he says it is impossible. For to, if they've done all these things and have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if... It bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
Now, this passage has caused a lot of consternation and difficulty over, over the years, and we're not here to solve all that tonight, but I just will say that if you look at how this passage ends, verse 7 and verse 8, it goes a long way to understanding what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he talks about the impossibility of restoring people to repentance who have shared in these things but turn away from it. It is very similar language to the language that Jesus uses when he talks about the parable of the sowers. And ground wherein the seed went, bore fruit, but then thorns and thistles came up and choked it, that ground never truly received the word. And that's the point of Jesus's parable, and I think that's the main point that the writer of Hebrews is driving to here. Um, But again, that's a whole other conversation for another time. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So now he's getting back to it. He talks about, he gives this warning, but he says, I don't think this about you. I'm sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Then here he comes in and says, you are to endure in this hope till the end. Well, what is it that forms the basis of that hope? And now we come back to the applications to the priestly work of Christ and his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 13 of chapter 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a, and what did we sing? Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So notice the connection between the surety of our salvation and the priestly work after Melchizedek that the writer of Hebrews is building the confidence of our salvation upon. Now, chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. 
And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, now this is important to note, Jesus does not resemble Melchizedek. Who does Melchizedek resemble? Jesus. He is the one who resembles the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, a perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. But for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, who was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement requiring bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. And then he quotes Psalm 110 again. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced And it is through that better hope, Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, that we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, that being Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. And then he wraps it all up. So as a consequence of this, what is Jesus able to do? 
He's able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. For indeed, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we bask in the glories of your salvation. And Father, we give thanks for your word that describes so assuredly with such strong words of encouragement our eternal hope that's set in Christ, our great high priest. Father, we thank you that this allows us to come before you to have a source of eternal salvation, to know that Christ continues forever on our behalf. So, Lord, as we spend the next several weeks looking at some of the intricacies and the details of what you have given to us in your word here, may we remember this great, vast truth that serves as a sure and steady anchor for our souls, that gives us hope, hope beyond this world, hope in the eternal priestly work of Christ for us. Father, work in our midst as only you can through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. I love the word of God. It's it's just exciting sometimes to just sit, and I almost feel like we should just be done. But we're not going to be, so don't, <laughs> don't, don't worry about that. Um, so we've been looking at the significance of Melchizedek, and so I wanted to sort of review or rehash some of the things that we've been looking at, and then we're going to move through and, and see and try to connect what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to do in his argument here that's essential for us to understand how Christ operates as a priest. Now again, what is the significance of Melchizedek? He is an obscure figure in the Old Testament. All right? If you were to just read the Old Testament, you don't know much about him. But his significance becomes very clear in what we just read. All right? He, he alludes, the author here alludes to Melchizedek several different times. He quotes the Old Testament several different times. He, he alludes to it and, and, uh, and speaks of or describes the whole story that we've seen with Abram and Melchizedek. And so the significance of this man is brought to the forefront in the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek actually serves to demonstrate the superiority of Christ. And I think to some extent we have this focus on this sort of, this, this sort of cryptic character. And we have the tendency to try to want to know what's not explained to us. 
We want to know all these details. But the point that the writer of Hebrews is saying is not to focus on Melchizedek, but to focus on Christ, that Melchizedek serves to praise Christ. Just as John the Baptist, the greatest man born to woman, what was his role? He must increase. I must decrease. And the same thing is happening with Melchizedek. And what we actually find is that the priestly work and office of Melchizedek serves to demonstrate the superiority of Christ's priestly office. And so what we're going to look at here is in chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at at mainly verses 1 through 10 and really focusing on verses 1 through 6. So let's read that again. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this evening, Christ's appointment as priest. Then we'll look into see what that priestly work involves later, but today we're just looking at that appointment as a priest. Now what we see is that the writer here seeks to focus us first, on, first of all in what the role of a priest is. What does a priest do? Um, And I I, I sort of debated, should should we spend the time going back to Leviticus and describing the priestly office in Leviticus? And, And we may yet do that and look at those things. But I think here, this summary that the author of Hebrew gives, Hebrews gives us, I think is, is sufficient for us. What does a priest do? What is the role of a priest? And the first thing we see is a, the priest must be appointed. He makes this a, a very clear, very clear in verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. He talks about how in verse 4, no one takes the honor of being a priest, particularly the high priest, on himself, but rather he has to be called by God. He has to be called by God. And so every priest has to have these things put into place. Um, Priests serve then to do what? And they serve to intercede. And we see that here. What the, the priest is chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So if you want to know what intercession is, there it is for you. Acting on behalf of someone else in relationship particularly to God. That's what intercession is involved, is, involves. This is what a priest does. And Christ and Melchizedek both fill this role of interceding before men to God. Now, just quickly, this is basic Sunday school truth, but why do we need an intercessor? Why can't we go to God ourselves? Starts with an S and ends with N. Sin. (laughs) All right? We can't go before God because of our sin. That's why an intercessor is necessary. God is holy. God cannot abide to look upon sin. So intercession must be made. And so we see that, that that this is what uh, priests are called to do. And he talks about how he is called then to offer gifts and sacrifices for those sins. And the third thing we see about priests is that they are vital to worship. They're vital to worship. You cannot worship God apart from a priest. 
Is that true even today? Yes. We cannot worship God apart from our high priest. And that's the whole point that the author of Hebrews is going to bring about. We need a priest. We can't just get rid of the priestly office. We need an intercessor. And actually what he's pointing us to is how Christ is that intercessor. So that's the role of a priest. Has to be appointed, seeks to intercede, and is vital to worship. Now, are there priests among men? Are there, are there priests among men? Yes. Here's the problem. There's a weakness with human priests. There is a weakness with every human priest. Human priests, first, they do die, and we're going to talk about that, but first and foremost, notice what he says in, in chapter 5. He talks about, and this is very interesting, he talks about how a human priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Because he's so much better and wiser than them? No. Notice what he says. Since he himself is beset with weakness. What we see is human priests are first and foremost beset with weaknesses. It's interesting the way that this is described here. The the word beset means surrounded or is, is completely engulfed in weaknesses. It is a comprehensive idea. It's not that a priest may be strong in one area but needs to grow in other areas. The idea is that in every area he is weak. In every area he is weak. And then he talks about how they're beset with this weakness. Well, what is this weakness? Well, the idea of weakness here refers to being infected by a debilitating disease. That's actually the the idea behind the original They're infected with a debilitating disease. So he talks about how human priests can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because they themselves have the same disease within them. Now what is that disease? That weakness is sin. And in fact, the author of Hebrews points that out. Notice in verse 3. Well, he's actually already talked about it. He talked about how he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins in sin. Uh, intercession, but the problem is, as he does that, he has a problem. Because, verse 3, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for not just the sins of the people, but for his own sins. Every human priest is obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And this is baked into the law. All right. When God gave the law and set up the Levitical priesthood, the, the, those who were the descendants of Aaron, he made accommodation for this reality because he knew that they were sinful. Look at what we see in Leviticus 9, 7. Moses said to Aaron, all right, this, is, this is the first high priest, Aaron, the first high priest. How are we starting off with these priests from among men? Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering." And your burnt offering and make atonement for who, first of all? Yourself. And then for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as Yahweh has commanded. We see it in in Leviticus 16. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. 
and shall make atonement for himself and his house. So what we see as we understand the role, the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is human priests have to be appointed. Well, every priest has to be appointed. There are human priests that are appointed by God, but there's a problem. They're weak, and that weakness is sin. But there's hope, not in human priests, but in Christ. We see Christ is qualified to be a superior priest. And what we're going to see now is this, the author of Hebrews is going to focus us on why Christ is better than human priests. I think this is important to keep in mind as we consider the entirety of the argument of the book of Hebrews. Go with me for a second to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His who? His Son. Now, the sonship of Christ is going to become very important to understanding His role as priest. And we'll, we'll talk about that for a second, or in a little bit. But notice what He says. He is the radiance of... Um, I'm sorry, the Son, whom He appointed to be heir of all things, and through Him, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He holds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for, for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much, what? Superior, or better, or greater to angels, as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the great point that the author of Hebrews drives home over and over and over again. Jesus is better. The, as I said, made up this word, the greaterness of Christ. That is the great theme of the book of Hebrews. And it's important that we understand that because Because the author of Hebrews is going to argue that Jesus is greater and better than the Levitical priesthood. That that no man, except for one, Melchizedek, has ever been able to fulfill that role. And even that man, Melchizedek, Jesus is even greater than him. For Melchizedek is made in the image of the Son not the other way around. Christ is qualified to be superior. In fact, this theme, just to quickly recap in the book of Hebrews, it's spoken of in chapter 1 through 3 that Christ is better because He becomes the better incarnation of the revelation of God. God spoke at the last times through many ways, but in these last days, He's spoken through a better means, which is His Son. He talks about how it's demonstrated by God's own words that Christ is superior to angels. All right, when we think about the spiritual realm and the, and the natural realm, all right, we generally think that the spiritual realm is of an order greater than the natural realm. And so in the spiritual realm, you have God and you have the angels. Well, where is the Son of God? He is greater than the angels. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, he speaks about how everything 
not just some things, everything is currently subjected to him. Now, just a quick aside, this should give us great hope. The nations rage, people imagine a vain thing. Why is it a vain thing? Why is it vain, as they say in Psalm 2, that they're going to cast off God's chains and, and, and the shackles, the supposed rule, of, rule that he has? Because it's impossible. Because everything has already been subjected to Christ. President Biden is subjected to Christ. The elections that are about to happen, they're already subjected to Christ. There is no one better or more powerful than Christ. And that's what he's driving home. He talks about how this victory is brought about through Christ's suffering. And how he possesses more glory than Moses in chapter 3. And then the main point, all of this greatness, the greaterness of Christ, is driving to what we see here, which is that he is a better high priest. It forms the great bulk of the main argument of the book of Hebrews. It is the Melchizedekian priesthood that the author of Hebrew appeals to to demonstrate that Christ has a superior priestly work. And so, notice what he says in verse 5 of chapter 5. So he's talked about, this is what priests do. No one takes it upon themselves. They have to be called by God. So here's the question. If a priest has to be called by God, was Jesus ever called by God or appointed by God to be a priest? And we see that he is. Verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. The first thing we see about the qualifications of Christ to be the superior high priest is he is qualified to be the high priest because he is the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews here points to this specifically in what we just read in chapter 1 to demonstrate the superiority of Christ over the angels. So remember, we talked about the spiritual realm being a greater order than the natural realm. In the spiritual realm, we have God and angels. And so, to demonstrate that Christ is better than the angels, He speaks of the Father saying to the Son that He is the Son. So if there are only two beings in the spiritual realm and the greatest of those beings is God, and the angels are the secondary beings, and Christ is better than the angels, then who is Christ? He's God. There's a statement of the deity of Christ in the fact that He is being called the Son of God. Now, this is what we call systematic theology. Because we, we talk about how God is a trinity. You won't find the term trinity in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, you won't find anyone talking about that making statements that Jesus and the, Fa Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one, but yet we see that implication clearly spelled out in what's being said here. Jesus is the Son of God. 
In fact, this is, this is almost what the entirety of chapter 1 is about. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to the, to the author here that we get that point? Because from the perspective of power and prestige, angels are higher than men. Now, notice what, what does he say in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7? Christ was made a little lower than what? The angels. And he's, he's hitting on this point because here's, here's where we wrestle with this. Who do we want to extol the greaterness of? Ourselves. And we don't come anywhere close to the greatness of Christ. We are beset with weakness. We are ruined in our sin. And so it is this reality that the author is driving home. God never called any angel His Son. And so we find this point being repeated here. Psalm 2-7 is where this is quoted from. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. It's important to note the name that is given to him. The second person of the Trinity is rightly called the Son. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. Why do we call Jesus the Son? It's not because he was a physical human son. Right? I think sometimes we get that mixed up. We don't call Jesus the Son because He was born as a Son. We call Jesus the Son because He is declared to be the Son by the Father. He is declared to be that reality. Now, look back with me real quickly in Hebrews chapter 1. I want to point out something. Sometimes when you're studying a passage, when I'm studying a passage, um, I get tripped up. And, and I read something, I'm like, that doesn't seem right. And, like, and of course, I know I'm like saying, well, this is in the Word of God. This can't be, this can't be right. So I, I, I really wrestled with what's said here in uh, chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses at the end of, ch- of verse 3 and to the beginning of, and, and through verse 4. It says about the Son, after He had made purification for sins... What does he do? He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have a clear statement of timing. We have this happening in time. After speaks to a flow of time. So there was something that happened before. Christ was born in the incarnation. Christ lived on the earth a sinless life. Christ died on the cross. Christ was raised from the dead. And after that entire work of purification was done... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then notice what we have in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, does anyone find, a, find it, does that sound not right to you for, for that? Having become more superior to angels. What, what, what question does that sort of beg? Yeah, wasn't he superior to the angels before? What's going on here? Well, we know, we know for a fact 
that he is greater than the angels beforehand because he talks about how he in the last days has spoken through the Son, the one who has been appointed the heir of all things in verse 2, and it's through the Son that what did God do? He created everything. He created the world. So, so we know that's, and that world, that cosmos, is including all of creation. So it would include the spiritual realm. So we know he can't be saying that Jesus became something that he was not. The author's not saying that Christ became something he was not already. Rather, and this is, this is what's hard to keep in mind here, and we're talking about cosmic things in the realm of eternity. He is saying that Christ became what he already was through his accomplishment of redemption. That it is almost a double working or evidencing of who the Son really is. The name that he inherited is the name he already held, that of Son. And we see that in chapter, or in verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, and then he quotes Psalm 2, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. You are my Son. Now, God, the Son, is the eternal Son of God. He is the one who, in eternity past, has always existed as the Son. He is the one through whom the Father created the universe. And He has always been the Son. That has never changed. But He is also the saving Son. Notice what he says here, that it was after he completed the purification for sins that he sat down at the right hand of God, that his superiority to all things is demonstrated in that great work. What's important to note here in this declaration that you are my son is there now becomes a link between the sonship of Christ, the Christ as the Son, and His priestly work. Now, why would that be important? Well, well, think again about what a priest does. What does a priest do? He intercedes. He intercedes on behalf of someone who cannot intercede because of their sins. How much of the created world has been affected by sin? All of it. Is there any angel who can intercede for us on the same level that God the Son can intercede? No. See, th- this is why it is essential that Christ be God. Because only God can intercede for fallen human beings before God. And that is the point that the author of Hebrews is driving There is a link between the sonship of Christ and his priestly work. Notice what's said in Hebrews 2, 5 through 8. It was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. Again, subjected past tense of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mine for him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the 
angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it, but this is where faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things we don't what? See. And so we have this great statement in Hebrews 1. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important that we recognize the sonship of Christ? Well, notice what he sums up everything in chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. When he sat down, what did God say about him? You are my son. Which means that if Christ is our high priest and he's interceding for us, is it even conceivable or possible that we would not be accepted before the Father if we come through Christ? Is it even possible for us to be cast off? And the answer is Absolutely not. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we also will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. But if we are faithless, if we struggle, He remains faithful. He cannot deny who? Himself. So the the, the concept here is, is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You know, it, we, we struggle with Hebrews chapter 6 and those warning passages. And, and it's impossible to restore someone who's turned away. What does that mean? It's the same thing Paul's saying here to, in, to Timothy. Look, if you deny Christ, you were never in Christ. You can't deny yourself. And if you're denying yourself, then you truly never were in Him. But if we struggle in our faith, if we are even to the point of saying we're faithless, What does Christ remain? Faithful. The Father cannot deny us even in our failings in sin because He will always, He must always accept the Son. Do you understand why this is the sure and steady anchor of the soul? That in Christ I can never be turned away from the Father. That as Christ serves as an intercessor to make propitiation, to satisfy my sins before the Father, it will always be accepted. But there's something else that I think just quickly before we close that I wanted to point out about the Sonship of Christ. Jesus Christ is proclaimed to be the Son of God. He is proclaimed to be uh, that forever. But notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. 
Galatians 3.26, Paul writes, In Christ Jesus, what are we? Sons of God through faith. We're going to talk about... Well, and he goes on in Galatians 4. He says, When the fullness of time have, had come, God sent forth who? His Son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as what? Sons. And because you... I love the change here, that we might, and then he now says you are sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts wherein we cry out, Abba, Father. We're no longer a slave, but we're a son. And if a son, then we are an heir through God. One of the doctrines we're going to talk about once we finish this look at the priesthood of Christ is what we call the priesthood of the believer. Christ being our great high priest, what can we now do that we could not do before? And here Paul tells us we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. We are your sons in Christ. And so, Christ is qualified to be a superior priest because He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we think of of these great truths and how they, they form for us a solid foundation of hope in You. Father, we thank You that we are sons of God because we are in the Son of God. That You cannot deny Yourself. And as Christ stands in our place interceding for us, You cannot deny Yourself. So, Father, encourage us with these words. And then may we hear the warning of Hebrews 6, that we not be like the ground that's drunk in the rain but allows thorns and thistles, the cares of this world, the things of of this life to pull us away from the sure and steady anchor we have in Christ. Father, we can be sure of better things when we are surely in Christ by faith. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.